0: everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will be a wide-ranging one with respect to real estate markets as our guests will deliver you insights into a variety of subsectors within the space as well as deliver some thoughts on developments overseas, namely within China's property market and potential implications of legislative developments out of Washington, D.C. So looking forward to covering a lot of timely ground. Uh, let me take a moment to introduce our guests joining us for the conversation today. I'm Glad to welcome back John Wallachian, Real Estate and Lodging Analyst Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, and glad to welcome for his first appearance with us, Ken Kaplan, Senior Managing Director and Global Co-Head of Real Estate with Blackstone. So, John, Ken, it's great to be with you both. Thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients, and looking forward to an insightful conversation on the real estate market. Markets.
1: Thank you, Dan, for having me. Yeah, thank you for inviting me to participate.
0: Absolutely. It's it's great to be with you both. So maybe as a starting point, Ken, we can focus in on commercial real estate. And I know the Delta variant of COVID-19 might have postponed the return to office or RTO timelines for companies, though, as uh, data is suggesting we are seeing some positive uh, trends with respect to the Delta variant, though even before the Delta variant had presented itself, landlords had been making arrangements for returning workforces. I'm curious, Ken, from your vantage point, how are landlords competing to attract and retain tenants? And what kind of RTO trends have you been noticing across the U.S. or even outside of the U.S.?
1: Sure. Well, let me just again say thank you for inviting me to participate, uh, Dan, uh, uh, in the session. And, you know, UBS obviously has been uh, such a strong global partner for our business and across the firm, and you know, we thank you for that. And we look forward to continuing all the work that we're we're doing together. Uh, I love that we're jumping right into office because you know there's a lot of uh, a lot of change happening in, in the global economy, uh, and a lot that's you know directly and indirectly impacting real estate, uh, and um, uh, so a lot to talk about. But you know, what's taken a lot of center stage has been office and and, and return uh, to office uh, over the last uh, uh, 18 months, and. Uh, I guess I'll start by maybe talking a bit about the trends that, that we've been seeing, and then I can talk about what what office owners um, have, we're seeing and what we've been uh, doing uh, as well. You know, obviously it's been a very difficult 18 months on on, on many levels. Um, and while the Delta variant has been a, a setback, we have been seeing positive trends. Uh, you know, as, as economies reopen, as populations get vaccinated around the world, uh, well, you know, we expect that recovery to continue. You know, on office and return to office. Specifically, again, one of the main topics and debates in real estate, if not the biggest topic uh, of discussion. And as we know, you know most offices right uh, shut down you know in, in March and April of, of 2020, and, and you know office occupancies dropped you know, to less than whatever it was 20 percent utilization, really only essential workers going to the office. And as we progress through COVID, you know, we've seen populations get vaccinated, we've seen economies reopen. We have seen positive trends you know, in return to office, you know, if you use Blackstone as an example, you know, we were back in the office early, you know, we took a lot of steps to reopen our offices last summer in you know, summer of 2020, July of 2020. Uh, and to do that, we took, you know, uh, several precautions, right? We, we, we did twice a week testing, you know, extra cleaning, uh, contact tracing, out, daily attestation, you know, transportation credits, mask wearing, you know, and a host of other um, uh, precautions spreading out on the floor. Um, and, as people picked up in terms of coming back into the office uh, and, and it's been really fantastic uh, to be together and you know our, our business I think like a lot of businesses um, you know perform very well uh, and really proud of, of uh, how we've navigated through the last 18 months and how we worked remotely but to me there's no question that we're better when we're together I think a lot of other companies uh, see, are seeing that as well as if they come back in uh, whether it's through training or culture idea generation you know collaboration uh, and many other, uh, you know, many other benefits. And um, and I'd say we've seen, although maybe not as early as we came back, a lot of positive trends around the world uh, with returning to office again as, as populations get vaccinated and economies reopen. And there have been some recent reports on this uh, as well. Uh, and if you look around the world on the trends, you can look to Asia, you can look to China specifically, which was leading the region in Asia, getting back to in-person work with, I think the the, the stat in the recent report is 96% of its workers back in office buildings. We're seeing similar trends in reopening and, and people being back in the office in, in, in places like uh, Hong Kong and India, where the cases uh, are, are coming down dramatically. Uh, in Europe and the U.S., which are lower uh, in terms of office utilization, 30 to 40% still you know positive trends uh, in those regions as well. Here in the U.S., you know while leasing activity is still trailing pre-COVID levels, we are seeing leasing activity pick up a quarter over quarter, and particularly we're seeing strong performance, you know, in Sunbelt cities, something I'm sure we're going to be talking uh, more about. And in European markets, we're also seeing, you know, office attendance um, trending upward. Now, if you look at, you know, the office sector more broadly and what landlords are doing and, and the buildings that are attracting tenants, uh, you know, what I'd say is you really you know, can't paint the whole sector with a broad brush, right? We know that not all, office buildings or markets are are, are uh, acting the same way, uh, and there is, you know, and we're seeing strong demand for the right buildings in the right locations. Maybe that's an obvious comment, but we are seeing, you know, a real bifurcation, and, and frankly, that type of bifurcation was something that, you know, we were seeing uh, and, and was directing our investment pre-COVID and has only, you know, been reaffirmed uh, over the past uh, 18 months, and it was reflected in our portfolio, frankly, which is, you know, a much lower uh, exposure to more traditional office. It's about 6% of our global portfolio versus much bigger concentration in life science office, office-oriented to media and tech to- technology tenants you know, and growth industries where, you know, you have these strong tailwinds, again, in these these markets where you have the depth of talent. So we're seeing these higher quality, more differentiated office buildings, you know, that are serving growing sectors and, and growing markets. And You know, best use an example, and maybe it's an extreme example, but, uh, is one where we are again seeing great strength is, is life science office, which is really, I'd say, top of the list. We've been a really active investor for, you know, several years. We bought a company called Biomed back in the beginning of 2016. So that was, you know, five and a half, uh, years ago. And these buildings are really essential to the purpose of our tenants. Uh, they stayed up and throughout COVID, you know, you can't do your lab work from your kitchen, you know, as, as landlords uh, and owners, we're providing the environment that lets our tenants do their work and advance their businesses. In the case of life sciences with gas lines and air circulation, power redundancy, you know, this controlled work environment, a great light and air amenity services. Um, and and we're seeing, you know, the demand be very strong, fundamentals be very strong, you know, um, you know that 2% vacancy or whatever it is in, in these markets that we're we're located in, in with this business uh so essentially full portfolio of strong uh, underlying rent growth and performance uh in the portfolio and again this might be on the extreme end but a good example of you know when you have the right properties in the right markets um and you're, you're serving these sectors these growing sectors you know really healthy strong uh underlying fundamentals and, and demand for buildings By the way, it's not just life science we've also been active in you know um media and tech related office uh Studio, we bought into a portfolio of of studios for production facilities. Also, seeing you know, um, very strong demand uh, and utilization of those buildings. And it applies more broadly also to more, you know, more traditional office, but again, in markets where you're seeing stronger, you know, population growth and and demand growth, and um, also buildings that are serving tenants and again, providing those environments that help tenants attract and retain talent, foster collaboration, help with culture building and and talent development. And these higher quality buildings uh, and as landlord offering, you know, these health and well-being amenities, better technology and transparency, professional development services, flexibility. That's what we're doing as landlords. You know, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing strong demand. But we are seeing more of a bifurcation between that and a lot of buildings that really don't you know, provide that for tenants. Obviously we're seeing with the this work from home.
0: Ken, it's interesting as you pointed out to learn about some of these trends with respect to a different industries and their path forward for return to office and some of the data points you pointed out towards the top of your commentary very encouraging trends within the U.S. and around the globe as well. Uh, John what about your thoughts? I know this is a topic we've spoken about prior here on the podcast. Uh, you've written about in your publications your reports. Uh, what are your thoughts on the commercial real estate sector in a post-COVID world?
2: Thanks, Dan. First of all, I'd like to really thank Blackstone uh, for their terrific partnership with us. And it's been just an absolute uh, grand slam for for our clients. And we thank them for all the great work, and we look forward to a long and prosperous relationship. Uh, you know, I look, Ken hit on uh, on really a ton of key points, uh, all of which I agree with. And anybody, you know, anybody in the field who's read my work knows that I'm a believer. And look, obviously, the timing, we don't know whether it's going to be 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. But nonetheless, we do believe in for, you know, uh, Really, all the reasons Ken talked about, we think that people are going to go back to the office. You know, I'm reminded of a phrase Facebook uses, and they call it creative collisions. And that's literally walking down the hall and saying, "Hey, Ken, you know, I just had this great idea. Why don't we go in the conference room, and kick it around?" And you never know where the next great idea comes from. But I would, I would just add a couple of things. And I'm reminded, you know, uh, albeit a very terrible time both in New York and in the country, is 9-11, and I think about some of the absolute statements that were made right after 9-11. I will never fly in an airplane again. I will never live in a high-rise. I will never live in New York. And I think one one of the great lessons for not only me, for all of us, is be wary of absolute statements during times of crisis, and I respect that there are a lot of unknowns uh, with COVID and where it will go and what it will mean for a lot of things, including demand for office space. But what I'm really taken by is the number of absolute definitive statements that were made by some very, very high profile CEOs back in March, April, May of 2020 uh, about, uh, we. you know, I could see us giving up you know, the majority of our physical footprint, and we're going to work remotely forever and so forth and so on. And number one, how many of those CEOs have changed, have significantly changed their perspectives. The other thing is there was there was this narrative, and the key word here for me is narrative, because, you know, narratives, especially in a world of the 24-hour news cycle and social media, you know, they, they gain traction very, very quickly. And those narratives were technology uh, is not going to be a big user of office space. Well, I would say a couple of things to that. I believe in 2020, thirteen of the biggest, uh, thirteen of the twenty biggest leases in the country were signed by technology companies. Um, Facebook uh, has taken the entire Farley office building here in New York. Uh, Google just announced a very very large building acquisition here. Uh, while some companies have certainly delayed return to office, I think the point here is that making absolute statements during crises, you know, can lead to probably er- erroneous thought processes. Uh, the other thing I would say is, you know, there's a, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, shrinkage of office space and shrinkage of demand. And invariably, that will likely happen, and some people are going to work remotely full-time, number one, and we, and, and a lot of companies are, are, have been public about we're going to have, uh, you know, sort of hybrid work schedules. But the one piece of analysis that I have not seen done is I think the the consensus number out there is there's going to be a shrinkage of about 15% of office demand. But the analysis I haven't seen done is how does that break down between Class A, Class B, and Class C office? And Ken talked about, you know, the higher quality buildings with better quality landlords. And I think about uh, a, a, new, a brand new building that opened in New York recently, one Vanderbilt. It's a beautiful, beautiful building. Rents are extremely high. I believe that building is now north of 90%, um, 90% leased. And so what we're seeing here is, and again, it's going to be evolutionary, not revolutionary, that in our view, that you're going to see uh, a significant focus from the tenant perspective on newer, higher quality, because the keys of air filtration, open space, uh, touchless controls, and so forth are going to be important. So that 15% number in our view it's going to be much smaller for class a and as we go you know down the the, the quality
1: scale i think that's where it grows john you said the evolution not revolution i actually had those exact words on my presentation or investors um in our meeting i guess that was in uh in may
0: Thank you, John and Ken, for the insights there. Uh, Maybe turning to the housing rental markets, I know during the height of the pandemic period, we did witness some notable residential migration patterns. Which states stand out, Ken, as having attracted an influx of population and why? Are we now seeing a reversal of any trends in this context as we begin to make our way out of the pandemic period?
1: You know, residential has been one of our you know top investment themes. I think your your audience probably knows this. But we're you know highly thematic, you know high conviction uh, investors, uh, and there are a, a few sectors that we've been particularly active in, and, and residential has been uh, one of them. It's actually the number two uh, theme that we've had to, to logistics, and uh, residential today represents about twenty percent of our of our global portfolio, and and you know in the U.S. certainly is. is, is you know, in addition in Europe and Asia, but we're very active in, in the residential space uh, in the U.S. And, and in residential in the U.S. It's been predominantly suburban garden apartments in, in, in growing markets, and you know, I'll, I'll touch on the markets where we're seeing stronger growth. Which you're, you're seeing that in in Sunbelt markets, which are seeing stronger you know, population growth and, and economic growth. But the residential fundamentals across the U.S. the entire U.S. have, have really been been strong. I mean, the the, the cities like New York, San Francisco um, saw weakness over the last 18 months, I'll get to that in a second because that is seeing a reversal. But, but broadly across the U.S., you know, the, the fundamentals have been, uh, have been strong. They were, were strong uh, pre-COVID. And again, uh, we, we saw strength uh, over the past uh, 18 months. And, and the simple thesis, you know, broadly in the residential space is that, you know, there's just been an undersupply of housing, you know, housing shortage in the U.S. you know, for, for many years, really, since, you know, coming out of the, the GFC. So that's, you know, o- over a decade, of, of underbuilding, and, you know, that, that undersupply, you know, combined with, you know, low interest rates, you know, you see house prices going up and, and frankly, strengthening uh, demand on the demand side uh, for rentals, uh, it's all contributing to, you know, strong uh, underlying f- fundamentals, you know, broadly in uh, U.S. multifamily and in residential. And you're seeing this in the stats, right, U.S. multifamily rents uh, for the, you know, we're up 10% uh, in August. You know, there's a market stat year over year, which is, I think, the first double-digit increase that they've, they've rec- recorded. And then if you go to some of these markets that have seen stronger growth, which I think is where you're going, places like Phoenix and Las Vegas, you saw rents up more than, you know, 20%. And, you know, that you combine that with occupancies that are at record highs of, you know, I think it was 97% in August. Uh, um, we obviously seen home prices up uh, also significantly significantly, and again, the combination of, of an undersupply and, and strong demand, particularly when you then combine that with markets that are seeing that stronger uh, in migration and, and, and population growth. And of course, we're not just seeing this in the market, we're seeing this uh, in, in our portfolio as well. Now, that greatest growth, again, we are seeing, let's say, more in Sunbelt cities where you're seeing, um, you know, in addition to this broad uh, uh, undersupply you're seeing the combination of more population growth, more residents coming in from out of state. You know, we are seeing that in, you know, markets like uh, Phoenix, uh, Las Vegas, Florida, Texas, you know, these, again, these Sunbelt markets where you're seeing uh, uh, greater demand or greater, you know, population growth uh, and just driving uh, further strength in the, um, uh, in the residential markets in those places. And again, uh, we're seeing those in the stats in in terms of renters coming in from out of state um and these in migration being just an added demand and an added i'd say boost to already strong uh underlying um, underlying fundamentals. I would say in terms of reversal of trends you know, we're still believers in gateway markets like new york city and uh and San Francisco you know you'll be, be deep you know a deep talent pool and and a lot of things that new york offers you know um Culture, food, diversity, experiences—that's hard to replicate. And while we saw weakness uh, or softness in New York uh, through, uh, during COVID, you know we've really seen a reversal and, and a strong reversal that in the last uh, in the last few months. You know, New York City had a record uh, summer leasing season. You know, we do own Stytown here in New York, and, and June uh, new leasing in New York City, I think, was the highest that it had been since 2008. We saw that in our uh, in our portfolio and our properties here uh, as well. At ten we had over a thousand move-ins in August, which is a record uh, month for for us. Um, and we're seeing also when we look at the the leasing, what's happening? People again coming in from out of state. So I'd say broad strength, you know, um, uh, in the residential market, a you know, real undersupply of housing, uh, and this confluence of factors I mentioned. You see that. That, that strength be even greater in these Sunbelt markets where you're seeing that population growth. Or uh, well, by the way, which is not something that was a new phenomenon through COVID, it was happening uh, with a, like a lot of these trends. You know, um, the office trends as well. This is not. You know, there's a bigger spotlight and bigger impact through COVID. But these trends in terms of better quality services, amenities in office was happening pre-COVID. These trends in migration patterns is you know these the, the states is also. You know, whether it's, you know, favorable business environments or whatnot uh, uh, happening pre-COVID, but really an acceleration uh, over the last uh, last 18 months and, and then through COVID as well. A broad strength that's in the resi sector and, and particularly in those markets, but, you know, also seeing uh, improvement and, and rapid improvement um, and a reversal, as you, you had mentioned, in some of these trends in these, these urban markets as well.
0: What about your thoughts, John, on housing and rental markets? Perhaps any reversals of these migration patterns we've seen?
2: So I think there's a few things going on here, and uh, you know, I can tend to touch on a lot of them. Uh, I think we, I, you know, I think there's a strong demographic story here for all three groups. Number one, uh, and number two, uh, you know, the realities are uh, the 1.7 trillion dollars in student debt is certainly if not an economic headwind an emotional headwind for a lot of people and when you add on as Ken talked about underbuilding that has occurred particularly as a result of global financial crisis we think the supply demand setup is generally good uh as far as markets go i want to talk about sort of near term and, and and what's going on over longer term uh the, again there was a narrative uh and it wasn't just a narrative because the actually the data it did show up in the data that early on during COVID, particularly those dense cities like New York and San Francisco, there was a significant number of moveouts. You know, rent, uh, and I'm, when I talk about rent, I'm talking about net effective rents. That's after you factor in um, uh, concessions, free rent, and so forth and so on. Did did decline precipitously. But what was interesting, and for those who looked at the data, they could have called this, that a lot of the mail-forwarding data from those locales, did not go to, you know, faraway lands. In the case of New York, a lot of that mail forwarding went to either North Jersey, Westchester County, or Fairfield County, Connecticut. In San Francisco, you know, people did go as far as Sacramento, which is, you know, having done that drive, it's not that far. So a lot of it was, if you think about what made and makes New York and San Francisco such a desirable place to be, a lot of it was closed, whether it was offices, but, you know, restaurants and theater and sporting events and so forth. So it doesn't surprise us to see uh, a lot of that strength returning, obviously, with rents having been lower. That's certainly more attractive. But if we look a little bit longer term, and Ken did touch on this, that this is not a new phenomenon. You know, the the report we published several weeks ago, we called the Wayne Gretzky Approach to Real Estate Investing. And, you know, for those who don't know, Wayne Gretzky, probably the greatest living hockey player of all time, had that famous line of, I skate to where the puck is going, not where it's been. And so that's really formed a lot of the basis for our analysis over the years. And we went back and looked from between 2010 and some, day, some of the data we only have through 2019, some we have through 2020. And it really shows what I call the five poster children for market share donation. Those states are New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Illinois, and California that have lost on a domestic population basis, i.e. excluding those who have moved from XUS. Uh, there's been some pretty significant population decline, uh, and the beneficiaries have been either the southeast, the Sunbelt states, or the mount the non-California mountain states, as well as Oregon and, and Washington. And so what we did was we looked at uh, population growth and job growth, and then we looked at the question was, okay, it's happening, but why? Now, there's a lot of reasons people move. Some of it is climate, some of it is age, but a lot of it is economics and policy. And we focus a lot on policy, so what we did was we just had a chart that just looked at, at uh, marginal tax rates, in, um, uh, gasoline taxes, real estate taxes, and so forth and so on. And then the last column, what we had was looking at Uh, state liabilities as a percent of state GDP, and so you can see that, you know, we we tend to think of, of investing, one of the tenets is vicious and virtuous cycles. And, you know, one of the vicious cycles is when you lose not just population, but it's that mix of population. If your if your policies and taxation and anti-business policies are driving both corporations and wealthier taxpayers out, then you get yourself in a vicious cycle. And hence, the other side is a virtuous cycle. And so, look, I want to be clear. We're not saying New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Illinois and California are uninvestable, not saying that by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but if you look at the key beneficiaries of this, uh, you know, and the markets that really jump off the page at us include, uh, Nashville, Salt Lake City, Boise, Idaho, uh, some names that may not be household names to people, but these have been beneficiaries. And so look, but, you know, when investing, we always think about risk-adjusted return. And so valuation matters a lot, clearly. But, you know, we think that these trends, although, uh, certainly not started by covid they've been going on for quite a while. Certainly COVID exacerbated them. So I think we have kind of a you know dual phenomenon going on here, that we think that these migratory patterns, particularly based on policy, will
0: continue. Thank you, John, and, and Ken, for your insights into housing and rental markets, what we've been picking up on there. Maybe looking outside of the U.S. for a few moments now, the debt crisis of China's Evergrande Group, this has grabbed investor attention and at times has moved global financial markets. Ken, from what you can gather, what are the implications or the scope of impact here to real estate markets across the globe? And what does this story tell you about the integrity of China's property market?
1: I just saw a, a UBS report came into my inbox today <laughs> on Evergrande. I thought it was actually a very thoughtful report, but we, we obviously been spending uh, time and, and focus on this uh, as well. And you know, the Chinese government has been you know concerned with you know, higher residential prices and over-leverage uh, among Chinese home builders. And, you know, in, in late 2020, you know, China's central bank announced a, a new set of finance rules that applied to all uh, Chinese home builders. And, and one of the implications of these tighter rules and, and tighter liquidity has been, you know, I'd say the recent distress we we're seeing at, at Evergrande. And, you know, for a long time, Evergrande has been one of the largest, but also one of the most highly, you know, levered developers in China. And I'd say... Uh, to us, it's that combination of leverage, you know, asset quality, how the company finance itself, and, and now these new rules that that really all contributed to the challenges that that Evergrande is now uh, is now facing. And uh, to do obviously to the size and scale uh, of Evergrande, this has is, is caused say more widespread liquidity concerns across you know the whole China real estate sector, really. Uh, towards what, you, what your question is, and also concerns about as a contagion outside of China. And, and we've seen this in, in bond yields and, and, and share prices, you know, in, in Chinese uh, developers. Um, now, before I comment on it, it's worth noting, you know, uh, Blackstone, you know, we, we have effectively no exposure to the Chinese for sale residential sector, and we don't own any shares or debt in any Chinese developer. And, and we do have uh, properties in China, but our existing portfolio in China is uh, over 60% logistics. You know, it's... It's uh, our biggest segment globally, and 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 the majority of what we own in China, and the remainder is primarily high-quality Shanghai offices, and um, uh, so very different uh, from uh, the Evergrande. Uh, business model and, and focused on, on development from, from our strategy. Um, but, you know, look, we're, we're continuing to, to uh, uh, monitor the Evergrande situation. It is evolving. You know, we uh, we remain committed to investing in China. We have a 15-year track record and have built a diverse portfolio across real estate and, and, and private equity in China. Uh, and I'd say importantly for us, you know, we continue to see opportunities uh, driven by uh, China's expanding uh, middle class. And, you um, um, and to me, distress in the market, you know, often creates opportunities for us to invest, and in, and this situation is is no different. So, you know, it's something we keep a close eye on. You know, I, I do think there's some unique uh, aspects of of Evergrande as, as a business, um, and to us, there's still opportunities and reasons to be investing in China, and we obviously still keep a close eye on it and 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 tracking what's happening there closely. But you know, still, again, uh, committed and, and focused on China as a market to invest in.
0: Now, John, I know you're focused on U.S. real estate markets, though our chief investment office has written about some of the implications here with what we've been seeing with China's Evergrande Group and the kind of implications, uh, potential implications to real estate markets across the globe. Anything there you can share with us?
2: yeah and i am going to defer to uh blackstone's uh vast expertise uh on on the global and local markets because as as you Dan, uh know uh, that my focus is is the us market so the way we've looked at it is and the question we asked is uh, do we will will this or could this lead to a global contagion particularly in the real estate world And while anything is possible and we've certainly leveraged the terrific work of our our investment bank uh, research uh, we do not think this is I guess the headline is the Lehman moment again uh, there are always risks out there uh, we think the Chinese government understand it very very well uh, the unknown here is uh, you know, leaving, uh, you know, beyond Chinese banks. Uh, how much exposure is there with global banks and global asset managers and unknown? Because one of the things that has made us very, very constructive, no pun intended, on the real estate market, um, and particularly here in the U.S., has been the plethora of capital that exists uh, whether it's in the hands of private equity, uh, whether it's in the hands of sovereign wealth funds, pension funds in this incredibly low envir- uh, uh, interest rate environment, you know, have to look at alternate asset classes and individuals. So, you know, it, working on uh, our our belief that there is not going to be a worldwide contagion, not only do we think this is not going to be... Uh, a long-term negative for U.S. real estate. If anything, on a you know, perversely, there could be several benefits. Number one, if construction in China were to slow, that could take some of the upward pressure off of some of the, the material costs that, are, that have really upset uh, the returns of developers and also access to materials. And number two, uh, you know, should this make investors more cautious? And again, I will defer to our friends at Blackstone. Uh, that You know, that money will go elsewhere. And the U.S. in our view will continue to get its fair share. Now, it, it, you know, China at least in, th- in twenty seven and 2018 were significant investors in U.S. commercial real estate that did tail off in 2019 and 2020. So, is it possible that we could see you know some reduced interest at least for the foreseeable future from China? Sure, but I think our key takeaway, and this is the most important thing from our perspective, we do not view this as as a major headwind for U.S. commercial real estate. And I just look at where you know some of the publicly traded real estate companies have been able to raise you know tremendous amounts of debt and incredibly tight spreads despite the Evergrande situation. So yeah, obviously there are some unknowns out there, but th- this is our view as we see it today.
1: I probably should have started there, too. I mean, we share that view about not impacting the, the broader markets.
0: Coming back stateside, maybe one more topic we can hit on for today. I know it has been a very eventful period up on Capitol Hill over the past couple of weeks. We've been closely tracking developments as it pertains to a funding bill, though also infrastructure. It's been ongoing, and we've been hearing about the debt ceiling as well. So a lot of plates spinning in Washington, though, with respect... Back to real estate markets in that context, Ken, what is being debated, discussed in Washington that is top of mind for you at the moment?
1: Oh, I'd say, you know, in um, you know, we, we we stay close to what's happening in Washington and, you know, the direct and indirect impacts uh, on real estate, and there's obviously lots of areas of focus here. You know, you just named a few, infrastructure, you know, there are various COVID relief efforts, um, lots of stimulus and, and that impact on you know consumer health or economic growth, spending, you know inflation, interest rates, um, the, the, the CDC eviction moratorium various housing initiatives. So uh, we um, you know we spend time and, and keep a close eye across uh, the range. Um, I guess to pick a, a couple of areas uh, of heightened focus for ourselves, you know uh, one would be housing policy, another would be you know the, the, the heightened focus on climate and, and uh, uh, and ESG, and uh, maybe starting with, with climate and ESG, which is, um, I'd say, increasing focus in Washington, here in New York, globally, um, and um, and certainly something that's top of mind. And I'd say something that's been a focus of ours uh, for some time at Blackstone and, and a component of, you know, seeking to drive value for our investors. And, um, you know, firm-wide, at the beginning of the year, we announced a plan to reduce carbon emissions, you know, by 15% in aggregate in the first three years. Of, um, of ownership across all new investments, uh, where we control energy use, and this has been not just real estate but across the business and um, and again, an, an area of focus and I think you know globally and beyond d c and you know one specific area of that is, is solar where we've been we 've been active and you know we put the largest uh, multifamily solar installation in, in the u s at St where we doubled uh, Manhattan solar capacity with nearly ten thousand rooftop solar panels we 've done that. Uh, in other parts of the firm investing in solar, we did in our logistics business, we're commu- committing to power our operations with renewable el- electricity through, uh, by 2024 and then going carbon neutral in our operations a year, uh, a year later. Uh, and we've also been active in energy transition solar outside the U.S. and India. We built, a substantial solar plants at, at, um, at, you know, multiple properties in the, uh, on their office side and, and the retail side there. Um, obviously, not just environment focused, but social governance as well. So, that's one area uh, of focus. Another housing policy, which, you know, a specific area within housing that we've been focused on is the potential to expand the low income housing tax credit program, uh, which would be good to get passed. As, you know, we touched on earlier, as I talked about um, and John mentioned as well, you know, there is an acute shortage of housing uh, in the U.S., and one path uh, to building additional housing is through tax credits and the, the LIHTC program. Um, you know light tech ha- you know housing is uh, i 'd say meaningfully undersupplied you know uh, only uh, about thirty percent of households that are eligible can have access to live tech housing and and it 's a new supply of affordable housing has been decelerating because of you know construction costs which have been rising uh, and uh a limited uh, availability of government government incentives uh which make it you know uh construction um of affordable housing, you know, that's what you need to make it more economical. So, and we've seen this in the supply stats, and while the supply's been going down, demand's been going up. So, this is an area that we've been focused on. We actually recently, uh, announced an agreement to buy, uh, um, uh, with AIG to acquire its affordable housing portfolio. And, um, you know, it's, it's an area where, you know, that would expand, it's going to expand our network of affordable housing partners, and, and we're going to, we're focused on you know, both maintaining and adding to the supply of affordable housing through that. So, you know, housing, uh um ESG two areas I'd say Washington broad more broadly that are focused but but you know beyond that um you know keeping a close eye on you know all that's happening really in Washington
0: John what about your thoughts on the public policy agenda anything in particular on your radar at the moment
1: I think a few and
2: the question I get in in every client presentation I do is uh what do you most worry about and for me it's policy uh, you know, former President Obama had a great line. He said, "Elections have consequences." Well, I sort of bastardize that a little bit, and I say, "Policy has consequences," and you know. So I look at and and so I mean, you can mentioned affordable housing, and 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 the Biden administration has put forth at least what we've been able to read. I think a very comprehensive and thoughtful uh... plan to increase the access to affordable housing both ownership and rental but the question becomes the devil is always in the details will that lead to an expansion of the financing pie, or will it lead to a crowding out effect you know this is one thing we worry about you uh, know one thing that has been talked about often is the elimination of 1031 exchanges now we were heartened uh when the uh house ways and means markup of the most recent bill did not include an elimination of 1031s so that's certainly a step in the right direction but it's not over till it's over as a uh, Yogi Berra used to say, uh, capital gains rates. Uh, at one point, there was talk of raising capital gains rates to the highest marginal tax rate. Right now, that number seems to be 25%. If that's what happens, um, okay, That I think that's doable. Uh, rent control. Um, we've seen in 2019, we saw three states pass rent, uh, statewide rent control, two of which, in our view, were pretty fairly balanced between uh, tenant and landlord. Uh, New York was a, was significantly tougher and much more, uh, tenant friendly. But, you know, this is an issue. And when we talk to, uh, multifamily operators, or frankly, even single family operators at this point, uh, you know, what are they seeing? You're starting to see more rumblings about it. So from the multi, from the rental side, even though we're very, very bullish, this is something we do keep our eyes on. So it's really comes down to policy. And then certainly any policy that would be significantly be significantly inflationary, would, you know, would likely have an upward imp- uh, upward pressure on interest rates, and hence, what would that do to valuations, cap rates, and so forth? So, for us, you know, we're really watching very, very closely. You know, certainly, you know, we heard Speaker Pelosi this weekend has delayed a vote uh, on on the infrastructure bill, I believe it's now October 31st, as they, you know, as they sort of negotiate with di- different parts of the Democratic Party. So, for us, really, we're looking at policy, and, you know, we always think about, life is about balance and finding the right balance between regulation policy taxes access to housing uh and i should say access to shelter because we think shelter can be ownership or rental as long as we find that right balance you know that will make a lot of sense to us but we you know we we are concerned that you know there there are some more you know For lack of a better word, you know, more extreme proposals out there that, that could have a deleterious effect, uh, on a number of things, including real estate. But we're, you know, we're, we're heartened that it seems to be cooler heads are prevailing here.
0: Thank you, John. So I know we're beginning to come to the end of our time together today. Uh, John, Ken, you've been very generous with your time, and thank you for covering all of the ground that you have thus far with our audience, our clients. Maybe before we close out, uh, we can hear from you with respect to final takeaways.
2: First of all, absolutely. We should leave the best for last. And once again, I want to thank our friends at Blackstone. For just their terrific work and their great partnership uh so as you know as we look across the real estate landscape you know i always joke that i get paid to worry for a living as an analyst so while there's always things to worry about you know if we look across the landscape most portions of commercial real estate uh the, the supply and demand fundamentals are still are still pretty good we look at the major asset classes we've already talked about the rental side be it manufactured housing multifamily single-family uh, the industrial space which we haven't got a chance to touch on and I know black zone has been very very um, very very uh, invested in that space and it is our favorite space uh, yes obviously a little concerned about valuation there but the, the, there's multiple drivers of industrial uh, the store self-storage is doing extraordinarily well um you know healthcare real estate, I think it depends where you are. The medical office building, Ken touched on life sciences, which is really having just a terrific go. Uh and, and as we said earlier, we think there's parts of traditional office that will do very, very well. Uh there's some more, you know, kind of non-traditional real estate spaces in what you know, what they call infrastructure, be it wireless towers or data centers. You know, we think there's a very a very strong secular trend there. Uh, and then the other thing is that, you know, while rising interest rates is a risk, we have to remember and it's where interest rates are starting and what the basis is. So we're sitting here today at roughly 1.5% 10-year. So it's one thing for rates to go up, and if one is a bond trader, obviously every basis point matters. But we have to put it in our view on a little bit of context, which is if we're talking about a one and 10-year, and UBS's view is, By June of 2022, the 10-year goes up to two percent. So, assuming that liquidity stays, you know, fairly robust in the capital markets, that should not have a major, major impact on capitalization rates going forward. And so, when we look at the, as we said earlier, the absolute plethora of capital that that uh, that is available out there we still see a fairly, uh, not fairly, a very, very solid backdrop for the vast majority of commercial real estate. And I do include single-family rentals in that market. We also think the housing market is in very, very good shape. Uh, homeowners are sitting on over $21 trillion in equity. Uh, the forbearance plans, even though they've, for all intents and purposes, come to an end, uh, the bottom line here is that the way that Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the FHA are handling uh, those forborne payments we think will not lead to a mass foreclosure crisis like we saw. So barring a major policy mistake, we, we are very constructive, again, no pun intended, on the vast
0: majority of the real estate world. Well, Ken, John, it was great catching up with you both. Uh, really appreciate the valuable insights you shared with us into real estate markets. We covered a lot of timely topics. Of course, much else we could have covered, so perhaps that lends itself to a follow-up conversation at some point. Though, uh, John Wallace and Ken Kaplan, uh, thank you again for joining us here on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Uh, enjoyed the conversation and appreciate your insights.
1: Great. Thanks again, Dan. Thanks, John. Thanks.
2: Yes. And thank you. And Dan, thanks for having us and look forward anytime happy to follow
0: up. Thank you, John. Thank you, Ken. And again, today we've been joined by John Wallach in real estate and lodging analyst Americas with the UBS chief investment office, as well as Ken Kaplan, senior managing director and global co-head of real estate with Blackstone. The UBS market moves podcast channel is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, stitcher and Pandora visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast podcast offering, as well as the new UBS Trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us.